Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And this week, I have the good fortune to visit with Allison Absey, who is an educational leader, author, and speaker, and recently authored uh, a book that is entitled Leading the Whole Teacher. Uh, I really have a heart for thinking about how we can best support our classroom practitioners at this time, especially for, uh, from that school leadership lens. And so Allison's book uh, has been one that's been speaking to me on this topic. And so I'm grateful that she's taken some time from her busy schedule to join us today on the pod to share a little bit about the book, what she's learned, some of her experiences. And Allison is someone whose career I've just followed through the socials and seen at conferences at times. And so I'm um, really grateful for the opportunity to catch up, to learn and have her on the show. Allison, welcome to the Good Life EDU. God, thank you so much. This is the perfect podcast for me to be on because I'm just over here living the good life in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, you said you had a move recently, right? Yes, yes. So I spent my entire life and career in Michigan. And because of my husband's job, we just moved from Michigan to Georgia. So it's it's a whole new chapter. I'm not retired. I'm way too young to retire. I want that on the record. But yeah, just starting a new chapter for our family. So I'm not in a traditional school leadership position now. I'm traveling around the country and supporting schools and districts and educators everywhere from California to New York. It's really exciting. And I know that you speak from personal experience with a lot of the strategies and the sentiments that you share, both in your book, but also just as an education advocate. And so uh, for those that don't know you, Allison, can you share a little bit of your backstory from, from your time in the school buildings? So I taught every grade, three through eight, not all at the same time, but many multi-age classrooms. And then I'd never intended to become, a, actually, I never intended to become a teacher in the first place because I did not really like school, but <laughs> felt called a couple of years after I graduated high school. And then I became a school leader by chance also at a, at a pretty young age. Like, I don't recommend becoming a principal at 27, but that's what happened with me, um, if you do the math, then you can know how old I am now after my 19th year as a principal. <laughs> um, but I had the, the fortune of being able to help open a middle school and high school in Northern Michigan. We opened a charter school and added a grade a year. So I just fell into the, the position of leading that charge with opening, creating a middle school and a high school, which was a phenomenal experience. And I went from graduating college thinking I wanted to teach first grade to becoming a high school principal, but I love all the levels. It's, I, I learned so much and there's such beauty in, in every age range. And that leadership is, looks a little different from elementary to high school. But after my family moved from Northern Michigan back to West Michigan, where we grew up, Eight years ago, I became an elementary principal in Zeeland, Michigan. So I just finished up my 19th year as a principal. I've been a principal of all levels. And in that process, developed an understanding that my role as a principal is more about leading teachers and staff members than it is about my interaction with students. We usually become principals because we're, we're pretty good teachers and we love kids, whether it's high school kids, middle school kids, elementary kids. And that's easy for us. But what we don't learn all that much about is how to be a good leader for adults and how to create school environments where adults want to be there. They feel fulfilled. They feel supported. 
in, in the way they define support. And support isn't always saying yes, but support is seeing the strengths and the value in every single staff member in our building and making sure that they know we see those strengths and supporting them and leaning into their strengths and growing that next step in an environment that's free of fear. So that's my passion is to, to work on providing those environments for our educators. And I know that they need it now more than they have ever needed it. Gosh. And I know there's an authenticity to your message because when you said that you'd opened a school and then you paused and corrected yourself and said created, it just aligns with everything you've closed that little segment out with there with regards to this perspective that is, it's it's about culture, it's about environment, it's about senior people, and could not agree more with those. And know too, as you said there, that uh, this has been a challenging series of years uh, for everyone in our profession and really for for all of us, anyone, everywhere. So what within your experiences over the last three years have led to this topic bubbling up to this degree and the strategies uh, really, which we're going to get into over the course of today's podcast, kind of set the framework for that. Yeah. So back in 2017, December of 2017 was the first time I presented at our state level conference, our Michigan Elementary and Middle School Principals Association state level conference, very first time I presented. And the title of the presentation was leading the whole teacher. Like that idea of we are focused on taking, hopefully we're focused across the board on supporting and taking care of the whole child in our buildings. And I wanna overlay that idea into the educators and how can we create spaces where they feel supported and encouraged and they can reconnect to their why and their purpose every day as they walk into the building. And so it's been conversations, it's been tweets I put out there and the response to tweets, it's been blog posts, it's been scholarly research over the course of the years and just really understanding from a teacher's perspective, what does that look like? What is what is supporting their whole selves look like in schools? And when I read the list, the list of the six pillars that are included in leading the whole teacher, you can just like see this visible, like shoulders going down, like their bodies relaxed. They're like, yes, if I had that at school, then I would feel fulfilled. I'd want to come to work every day. Gosh, that's uh. I also have a heart for that as a topic and got a chance recently to present uh, with a session that we tiled as because teachers need more than a jeans day, because right, that tends to be our typical approach. We give you opportunity to wear jeans. People that listen to podcasts know I go on this rant occasionally. <laughs> and uh, we do a potluck every other week and we let you out of PD days two hours early, self-care. Uh, and I, I love those as efforts, right? We're trying, like, I, I certainly don't want to uh, make anyone feel bad for those types of gestures, but what we're talking about here is a lot richer, deeper, and more thoughtful, I would say, uh, across a myriad of different fronts, like these six elements. And so uh, can you maybe, for those that are listening and would love to have that experience you just alluded to, could you identify those just broadly for us? And we'll maybe break them down following getting a sense of what that list entails. Yes, and I could join you on that Jeans Day rant, um, <laughs> but I won't. I'll, t- I'll share the, the list of the six pillars of leading the whole teacher. So it's ensuring that emotional safety comes first. So it's emotional safety, helping teachers feel valued, building positive relationships, protecting healthy workloads, teachers as decision makers, and fostering continuous growth. 
those are the, the six pillars. I think I hit them all. Well, so I'm with you. That is funny. I do feel like that is a great comprehensive list that I'm excited for us to break down into detail. So let's start with emotional safety, if you would. So I I think, oh gosh, it was in that first presentation in 2017, I used a tool called Mentimeter that probably many people are familiar with. And one of the awesome things about Mentimeter is you can have the audience create a word cloud together so that all the participants created a word cloud. And I asked the question, what might make a teacher feel unsafe at school? And since then, I've asked that question across the country, before the pandemic, during the pandemic, now as we're, you know, I'm using air quotes, after the pandemic, whatever we are right now, I continue to ask this question. If I ask teachers that question, can you guess what pops up in the center? Like when you make a word cloud, if the word is used over and over again with the participants, it becomes larger in the center. And there's one word that is large and in the center of almost every word cloud answering that question. Can you guess? Who on emotional safety, what teachers mm-hmm. would say the most? Um, I don't know, Allison, you're gonna have to tell me what, what is <laughs> oh. emotional, the number one thing that teachers are looking for with emotional safety. Uh, <laughs> it is an environment free from gossip. Whoa. Gossip typically comes up in the middle of, and it makes me just want to cry because <laughs> that is something that we have control and or influence over in our school buildings. There are so many things we don't have control and influence over, but gossip certainly is one of those. And as a a leader, you know, making sure that our teachers are not feeling judged or gossiped about is so important to me in creating an environment that's free of that. And they deserve that, teachers deserve it. So when I ask principals, pre-pandemic, the word that would come up the biggest in the middle when asked what might make a teacher feel unsafe at school is evaluation. And I'm like, okay, what? Like we have control over how that feels as leaders. And we're allowing that to create a fearful environment for our teachers makes no sense. So those two things are um, a couple of things that we talk about in the book and, and strategies on how to create an emotionally supportive environment. And and even just asking that question of your teachers, what might make a teacher feel unsafe at Quincy Elementary and having them do that word cloud response and then talking over with them about like, what what are these factors are out of our control that we can't really do anything about? What's within our control or what's within our influence? And let's create an action plan based on the things that we do have some influence or control over. That in itself could make a huge difference in the culture. And I love that as a practical strategy. And and I got to say, having had the opportunity to go through the book, I love that. I love that there are guiding questions and I love that there are also things that you could implement right away. Uh, and so thank you for sharing that as an example of what it would look like to start to have those conversations around the emotional safety of your staff. And so hopefully through all these, we can have the opportunity to learn some of those easy to implement quick tips and tricks to supporting the whole teacher. So uh, I'm going to pivot to our second one and ask about making sure the educators feel valued. Let's go into that one a little bit deeper. So I think back in 2018, maybe, I heard George Kuros speak for the first time. And one of the things that he said is, as a principal, do you know a strength of every single one of your staff members? 
And if you're a new principal, don't go in and make a single change until you know a strength of every staff member. And helping teachers feel valued is first of all, from our perspective, do we see their strengths? Every teacher has strengths. Even the teachers on the improvement plan have strengths and do they feel empowered by their strengths? And are they encouraged to lean into those strengths, share those strengths with others? Do they know that we see that in them? And I think as a leader, that would be a good first step is to just sit down and with a list of your staff members and write down a strength that each of them has and then tell them and then try to help them lead within their strengths. And I want to ask you about this strengths list then. What are, give me some examples of some of the varied strengths that a school staff individually, right, might exhibit, because the things that come to mind when you share that uh, are pretty broad. Right. They could be, but I have, you know, I would have teachers who have strengths on modifying whatever they're doing based on their student needs. So they might have a student with behavior needs, but that student feels seen and connected and whatever the procedures in the classroom are modified for that particular student needs. Now that teacher might struggle with teaching some academic content, but that teacher has that strength in seeing the individual and making those modifications. So does that teacher know that I see that strength, even though there's these areas that are very clear for growth? Is that teacher able to share those strengths with colleagues, even though their colleagues know they're struggling in some areas? Not by me as a principal, I don't share those, but the teacher sharing those. So, you know, other teachers who might be really good at transitions, other teachers who might be really good at organizing a classroom library and can share that with their colleagues. I was in a classroom last week where a teacher just did a phenomenal job with a book tasting with ninth graders. Is that teacher able to share that strength? Does that teacher know that we see that strength? So it can be specific. Some teachers have like really broad strengths, like math instruction in math workshop, but it's just helping them lean into them and helping them see that we see that strength. And I could see too how that would contribute to the next element on our list, which is positive relationships, because to feel seen for your strengths, both by the leadership in the building, but ideally by your peers as well, right? As you're talking about there, maybe uh, like, how do we find ways for colleagues to understand those things about one another and the potential learning opportunities that are with that. I don't want to speak too much. Positive relationships. When you wrote <laughs> about that in the book, let's uh, explore that a little bit more too. Yeah. Um, I want to go back just to the helping teachers feel oh, valued yeah. and just leave with one idea, which is what if we change how teacher evaluation is perceived to have it be that we're empowering teachers through their strengths with the evaluation process rather than having it be this judgment. Because research shows that teacher evaluation does not improve student achievement. There's a preponderance of evidence, as Doug Reeves likes to say, that it does not improve student achievement. So if it has negative impact, doesn't have a positive impact, how can we turn that around and use it for use its powers for good instead of evil? So oh. that's well, and that will resonate with our Nebraska educators in particular, and, and hopefully with everyone, uh, because I know, because we've had about six or seven episodes on the podcast with our, we develop our own educator effectiveness standards uh, in our state. And that has been one of the 
pillars of their messaging has been that very piece. The way in which we do our evaluations and administer those needs to be looking towards that positive affirmation of the good things that are going on and growth mindset and less about it being punitive or something that you would enter that experience feeling any sense of angst about and more so just as, hey, this is a great opportunity to get feedback and to improve at my craft. That's wonderful. Way to go, Nebraska. (laughs) I love that that's a statewide effort. Um, There are some resources, obviously resources in the book that would support those efforts. But on my website, I also have some other resources that would help help with that effort that Nebraska has taken on. I love that. Oh, let's get the plug for the website then. So if you're looking for things to help make (laughs) actionable steps towards what Allison is advocating for here and is also at the heart of some of our NDEC teamwork, you can go to allisonapsey.com and under books, just find leading the whole teacher. And then you'll find just a clickable list of resources right there, including a note-taking guide that is, it'll speak to Nebraska's heart too, because it's an empowered note-taking guide. So, so often we go to PD sessions or read books and we just think about all the things we're not doing. I don't want you to think about all the things you're not doing while you're reading, leading the whole teacher. I want you to think about the big ideas, the ahas, and then the strengths you already have in place. And then what might the next steps be? And that's aligned with this philosophy about evaluation as an empowerment tool. Well, and so thanks, because I love when the podcast episodes are able to point folks to practical resources and things that are easy to implement. And so certainly check out uh, Allison's site so that you can access that document. I know I'm going to be. uh, And so I've taken us a little bit off the rails here. (laughs) Guide us back to element three of the six elements, positive relationships. Could we uh, explore that one a little bit? Yes, yes. Thank you. I think I helped with that going off the rails, but okay. So back on the rails, positive relationships. And and we know the importance of positive relationships, like you talked about, which is colleague to colleague, student to student, teachers to students, families to the school community and the, all the staff members, leaders to teachers. So all of those different relationships are incorporated into the chapter on on building positive relationships. But one of the things that I took advantage of the pandemic and the mask wearing and said to our teachers, if we're wearing masks, we can wear jeans whenever we want. So I didn't ask permission for that from the district as a principal. We just went for it. And then as soon as the masks were not mandated anymore, their biggest worry was like, do we have to stop wearing jeans now? I'm like, no, we're never going back. But the other thing I gave teachers was also a get out of jail free card from Monopoly. And this was so they could give it to their colleague when they did something that they wish they hadn't done. And it's this whole idea of giving each other grace. So like if they were snappy one day or weren't really excited about an idea a colleague shared, whatever the case is, they could give the colleague their get out of jail free card as a way of asking for grace. And it was interesting because as we were coming off like an intense year uh, with the pandemic, teachers were saying like, we did such a great job of giving each other grace and understanding that everybody has a ton going on during this pandemic. Can we keep doing that? And the answer is like, absolutely. But I think as a leader, it's really important for teachers to understand ideas like the zone of stress tolerance. I learned about it with Heather Forbes and Help for Billy. She talks about it from a student perspective, but then also from a teacher's perspective of 
We have so much embedded stress in our lives that we only have so much room for the additional stresses a day will bring before we get to our breaking point. And during the pandemic, on top of all the regular responsibilities, like we were managing kids learning at home, we were worried about you know, safety and, and health. There was so much going on. And teachers were like, why am I snapping at people at things that would never really bother me before? And that's because their zones of stress tolerance were so full that they had hardly any room before they got to their breaking point. And of course, our day is going to bring us additional stress. So part of building positive relationships is really that, that self-awareness and understanding of our own behavior and why we're doing what we're doing. And then also the impact our behavior has on others and how to be a supportive colleague. And, you know, sometimes we think commiserating or being the person that everybody vents to is being a supportive colleague. But if somebody walks out of your classroom and their problem actually feels bigger than it did when they walked in, that's not the support that colleagues need. And, and the book breaks down, like, what does that support look like? And that's that's really been influenced by what teachers have shared about the support that they need, especially when they're going through challenges. Yeah, I, I feel that. I, I do think that there is that perception that what Friday after work meetup times are for is to vent. Uh, and that is a healthy thing to do, I think, at times, too. But if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying there also is, is it's helpful to try to support folks in finding, maybe this gets back to the previous, what's your next step for lowering that stress level so that you do have the space to not need to vent? Am I following that all right? Is that sort of how it yeah. kind of works? Okay. Well, yeah. So lowering this, the, the baseline stress so that we can, can handle all the additional stresses that come in the day before we get to our breaking point, because it's not good for anybody for us to, I mean, naturally we're going to at some time or another reach the breaking point and all of our feelings are valid, but it is important to have healthy culture and positive relationships that we understand that our behavior always has an impact on others. And that impact is always positive or negative. It's never neutral. And if we want to have an environment where everybody loves to come in and work, then leaning toward behaviors that have a positive impact would be great for the environment. And this is where some of the wellness practices that have been promoted would have its place as a factor. I'm not, I'm going to say not a solution, but a factor maybe in helping to address this issue. But I do think sometimes too, when a factor is presented as an answer to say that, hey, if you just take a little bit of time to breathe and do yoga in the morning, your job satisfaction is going to skyrocket, right? It is not, it doesn't land well all the time with staff consistently. Is it, is it fair to say? So, so we want to think about to this say. as a way to lower it. Yes, exactly. Yes. So that self-care is a way to lower that baseline stress. Like if you can listen to an inspiring podcast or inspiring music rather than that true crime podcast as you drive to school and that helps lower your baseline stress, that's a that's a very helpful practice. But I'm with you in that, like it's felt like self-care is just like something to add to your to-do list, like self-care, bring a dish for the potluck. Like, no, that's, <laughs> that's not the idea. To me, it's like the shift from self-care to a focus on personal wellness. And that is like listening to our bodies, to our minds, to our hearts, 
and then taking action based on that information we get when we're really in tune with ourselves. And maybe that's a spa day. Like last night, I was, I had a bad day and last night I just needed distraction. So we watched episodes of Severance on Apple TV because that's what I, my husband's like, well, let's just sit out on the porch and talk. I'm like, I can't talk right now. I just need to be distracted. And that was self-care for me last night. It just, it, it's, it's looks different. It's not something to add to our to-do list. It's something to incorporate into our everyday. Absolutely. And even uh, at the other end of the spectrum, if waking up and working out is going to make you feel a little better, that's mm-hmm. great. But if you need that extra hour to sleep and to feel rested, uh, maybe that's what you lean into and not necessarily guilting yourself <laughs> into the right. same self-care routine if it's not truly feeding that your overall wellness. Yeah. Yes. Right? <laughs> Thank you for letting me. Sometimes on the pod, I'm just learning, right? Oh, I always am. I'm always learning. And so it's great to just like press in and, and thanks for helping me. Verbal process is probably yeah, what I, I love that. Think. So one other thing that I think about with the self-care advice, it's needed. And it actually mm-hmm. is incorporated into the chapter on protecting healthy workloads. Yeah. You're already like drumming on that like <laughs> transition that I was thinking about. Yeah, go ahead. So there are very specific practices that are introduced by an educator named Elizabeth Jocelyn, and she is amazing. And she's an art teacher just with a passion for like that personal wellness and self-care. And so she, based on her training, has come up with some, some specific practices that are included in the book. But just to back up with that big picture, to me, thinking that self-care is going to fix the educational shortage crisis and the educator burnout crisis is akin to putting a Band-Aid on a geyser. You know, if we're bleeding, we need the Band-Aid. We need the self-care. But can we look at the source of the bleeding also and stop the bleed? <laughs> um, and that's that's the idea. Like, how can we systematically go deeper to create environments that are going to nurture and support the whole teacher. I think one of the bravest things a principal could do is lead a book study with this book with their teachers. Like it would take a lot of vulnerability, but wouldn't that be empowering and just so telling of like what teachers connect to, what resonates with them, what doesn't resonate with them. They could create action teams like that could change a culture. I've had principals come up to me this summer and say, I can't do it. I can't keep providing treats and candies and I'm just burnt out. I can't. I'm like, well, then you don't do it. Like come together with the teacher team. Like if you want it to be a culture, I know at Quincy Elementary, they are doing fine without me because it wasn't about me. It was about we. And that's what this whole, this leading the whole teacher is. How can we make this environment about all of us and not just dependent on a leader and need satisfying for everybody? And that definitely sets up the workload conversation for us to go into that with greater depth. And actually two episodes ago on the podcast, uh, I had a chance to visit with Brent Madden of Arizona State University. And uh, it was a really interesting conversation because his perspective was that we have a workforce design problem that is leading to, as you said, the geyser. right? And, (laughs) And for Brent, and that's not to say that there's Personally, I'm not someone that thinks that there's ever one solution, but a myriad of factors or different ways of thinking that we might just want to entertain and designing, as you said, what is best in our context. 
but he looked at co-teaching practices as a way to shift how we think about the traditional classroom and the role that we ask teachers to step into in that. And so when we think about workload, um, for the people who listen to this podcast on a regular basis, that is an example of people doing work who are trying to, I think, shift around how we think about the expectations we place on our teachers. Um, where does your book go with that particular topic? My book goes where educators told me to go because I wrote several blog posts about healthy workloads and the feedback and the pushback I got really helped me define better what healthy workload means. And the definition in the book is that healthy, a healthy workload means you have space for creativity. And a healthy workload means choosing to work while well, working on nights and weekends is a choice. It doesn't feel like it's it's mandated. So having those couple things, I think, define the healthy workload. But then the educator said, you know, I can do the work. Like, this isn't about me not wanting to grade papers. I can do the work. It's the worry load I can't handle. So then it shifted to talking about both the workload and the worry load. And I really go kind of off on a tangent in the book about email because email can be the bane of our existence. And since the pandemic and remote working, we feel like we have to be tied to our email and that communication all the time. And I think as leaders, it's incumbent upon us to start modeling healthy practices with email. So I include seven reasons not to email on the weekend. And I also include some tips to email to inspire rather than baffle, because I don't know if you've ever received an email where you're like reading it and you're like, I'm not really sure what the point is. And then sometimes you get emails from the same person over and over and they're like novels and you're not really sure what the takeaway is. So just some tips on how to use email as a respectful communication tool rather than this like overwhelming thing that it is for so many educators now. Absolutely love that for sure. And I, it resonated with me what you said a moment ago too about making space for creativity. I'm a big James Clear fan and there uh, is an email uh, ironically enough, that he said <laughs> once a week, though, very simple, very straightforward, that promoted uh, six months ago or so that you should lead your life in a way that you're able to pivot to the spontaneous opportunities for your curiosities to live themselves out. Uh, and that if you get to a place where you can't do that, you're going to miss out on things that you would otherwise take up and might be the next step in your personal and professional evolution. And I love that. And I want that for all professionals, especially our educators. And it's tough if you feel like you just uh, are doing the best you can to keep your head above water. Right. And you know, that whole idea of that, all of these pieces, but especially feeling strong and empowered, like if we feel strong and empowered, we feel like we can take on any challenge that comes our way. But when we feel weak and defeated, even the smallest thing can just throw us for a loop. The smallest challenge can throw us for a loop. And, and I think that's just another reason why it's really important that our teachers feel valued and, and strong. Well, can we maybe go a little bit out of order then as it feels like continuous growth might be a great place for us to pivot to next? Yeah, yes. So, and just a couple of things on, on the continuous growth is, you know, we always have professional development in education and educators often just wait for the pendulum to swing from one side to the other 
I'll sit through this and I'll wait until they tell me the exact opposite thing to do in two years. And I would love us to break free from that by giving educators an opportunity to dive into something they want to learn, an area of passion. Like in the book, we talk about teacher genius hours. So what if, what if teachers learn, or even like Dr. Doug Reeves talks about teacher science fairs, where they talk about a problem of practice and they, they try a solution and then they share what their results are and they get to decide what the, the problem of practice is. So giving teachers freedom to learn and grow in the way that they feel they need to learn and grow. And then also opportunities to share with each other and lead each other. That's phenomenal. And I see a lot of professional learning shifting to those types of settings, as well as I do see some of the opposite too. I think with some of our high quality instructional materials, there is a different conversation that's happening as well. And so maybe that's the pendulum swing, the push pull where professionally, we always want to see examples, but then there's still the art of teaching that comes in and, and being mm-hmm. able to pick your spots. But uh, all right. And so element number five, but six in our conversation, decision-making. Yeah, this is a strong area of passion. Also, I have an aversion to the idea of talking about building capacity in people. People have capacity, period, hard stop. The capacity is there. We have to help them access it. So let's have conversations about helping them access rather than thinking we're going to build people. We build capacity in programming, in organizations, but not in people. They already have the capacity. And to me, words matter. And and having that subtle shift in language sends a whole different message to teachers and to educators. But that whole idea of inviting them to the decision-making table is assuming they're going to add value. So many times decisions are made by really smart people sitting in central office in a, a boardroom with a long table, and they vet all these different responses and come up with like a really smart idea that's going to run into a lot of obstacles because they're not getting people with feet on the ground. They're not getting their input on what might be the obstacles to implementing this. What are some other considerations we need to to think about before implementation? So I would love to see teachers invited to the decision-making table from the problem identification stage all the way through full implementation of the solution. But there are other ways to invite teachers into that process. You know, sometimes as a principal, I'm a middle manager. So sometimes central office would say, okay, implement this at Quincy Elementary or at Grand Traverse Academy, and we'd we'd have to implement it. But we can still get teachers involved with, okay, let's talk about this. This is what we have to do. What are some barriers? How can we overcome these barriers? What supports can we provide? So they can still be involved in the process, even if it's not at that you know, problem identification or solution deciding level. And uh, I think they deserve a spot at the table. And the ability to feel that ownership that comes with it, which I would imagine that. And so then if we get back to not going out of order, as I forced us to do, <laughs> I can see then how that continuous growth might come around those self-identified areas to enact said right. initiatives in a way that makes sense to a building or the individual classroom teacher. Yes. One of my favorite leadership books is Lead Like a Pirate by Beth Huff and Shelley Burgess. And one of the things that they say in there that I do quote in the book is that people are much less likely to tear down systems that they help build. And if you want to stop, uh, I also have an aversion to the idea of buy-in because leaders are not car salesmen. 
If we invite teachers to the decision-making table, we don't need to worry about getting their buy-in on initiatives because buy-in is surface level. Let's invite them way deeper than the surface level. I love all of that. And it, we could talk all day. <laughs> so great. I, I really almost need to bring it back for like part two, or we could slow down through this back, the back three here, but 30 minutes goes fast each and every week. And so I certainly want to give us a little space here uh, as our conversation does come to a close to pivot at this time to maybe just a, a, a closing thought, a thought that you would like to leave our audience with, whether that's something that's front of mind just at this moment, or maybe you know, having written this book and now seeing it out in the world and getting some response back from educators. How, yeah, take this wherever you'd like for it to go, but just maybe a, a note to end on. Yeah. So one of the other questions that I ask groups that I work with and I have this this fall is, you know, what's a challenge you're going through that nobody would guess about you? And over and over again, we see responses like imposter syndrome or anxiety or depression, or I'm going through a divorce or financial problems. And in every response is repeated. And often people in the participants are in tears, you know, just like so overwhelmed with the emotion of like, look at these professionals in the room and all the challenges they're going through. And then we process through, okay, like we're successful professionals. And this is what we're going through. Let's think about what our students without developed brains, what they're going through. Let's think about our families who have additional challenges or other kinds of challenges, what they're going through. And I just encourage us to continue this idea of assume that everyone is fighting a battle we know nothing about. That's a Brad Meltzer quote. And let's give each other grace and let's avoid judgment. We don't need to, to judge there's a judge out there. It doesn't have to be us. And people don't need to kick a judgment when they're down. And at the very least, I suggest that you procrastinate your judgment. Just put it off for another day. And you can judge them later. But usually when you come back to it later, you're looking at it from a different perspective and that you don't have that element of wanting to judge them even there. So give grace and procrastinate judgment is my last word. And that will be a message that I know I personally hold on to. I really appreciate hearing that, as well as our entire conversation today, Allison. It's just been fantastic to get a chance to talk shop, to learn from you, uh, to point people towards these great strategies and, and the information you share in leading the whole teacher. And so uh, for anyone that wants to follow you or to access more resources, I know we pivoted to it once, but I'll give you a little space to do that as well. Yeah. So if you know how to spell my name, you can find me on anywhere allisonapsey.com. You can email me at allisonapsey at gmail.com. And uh, all my handles are allisonapsey, except for my TikTok handle is allisonapsey19. And I like to make very cringy TikToks that embarrass my <laughs> children. So you can join me there also. But I would love to, to get connected with any of your listeners, especially those passionate Nebraska educators that are trying to turn the teacher evaluation system around and could really be a model for the nation. I'm really excited about the work you're doing. Well, and thank you for sharing your work and your heart for it through this avenue. And so Allison, it's been really great to have you on the pod and hopefully we'll get a chance to chat again with you soon. Thank you. Thank you.